I'm going to ask Lindsay to introduce herself in a second. I'm Justin Pitt, and I am not important this morning, and I was embarrassed that my photo was on the announcement. Um, <laughs> um, uh, two agreements that we talked about when we uh, kind of organized what we would say, and agreement number one is we really hope this is a conversation. Uh, homelessness is a subject that if you haven't worked in this area or you haven't spent a lot of time there, you have a lot of questions, and some of those questions are questions you're afraid to ask. Mm -hmm. So we hope this is a conversation, and we hope this is a space where you feel at any time safe to raise your hand and ask any question or explore any idea that we're talking mm -hmm. about or that Lindsay's talking about. Um, and the second one is, I'm a lawyer by trade and training, and I'm gonna try really hard not to make this a deposition. Uh, as I ask Lindsay questions. <laughs> I told him I'd been through a deposition before, so I'm actually okay. So, uh, if she objects to my questions or tells me to slow down, she has permission to do that, because uh, I can kind of get going. So, why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah, so um, it's really good to be with y'all. I've known members of Grace Point for years now, so it's lovely to be in this new space with you. Um, I am the Education and Street Chaplaincy Coordinator at Open Table Nashville. Um, that on any given day, um, I wear different hats, um, whether that hat is a street chaplain, interfaith, um, or a community organizer, or a homeless outreach worker. Um, but I'm going to be talking a little bit about one of the nonprofits I co-founded here at Open Table Nashville. So it's great to be with y'all. Um, I moved to Nashville in 2003 um, in order to have a very comfortable life and pursue physical therapy at Lipscomb. <laughs> so you can see how well that's going for me. Um, it's really good to be with y'all, though. I'll talk a little bit more about that. So um, tell us, for those of us that aren't familiar with it, tell us a little bit about Open Table Nashville, what it does, yeah. what, what makes it unique. So um, a lot of people hear open table and they think it's about food, but um, the open table <laughs> metaphor, because there is actually an open table that does reservations, um, ours is really about fellowship and community. And we're an interfaith homeless outreach nonprofit. And instead of people coming into us like they do at the mission and room in the inn, we go out to where people are. So any given day, our office is the campsites, it's the underpasses, the bridges, it's the slums, it's the soup kitchens that used to be in this building that I used to come to um, on Wednesday nights. Those are the places we go and we meet people where they are, help them navigate the resources and move toward housing. And we don't just do the service providing and the charity and the mercy work at Open Table. We're actually working to break cycles of poverty. So we're, we're not trying just to perpetuate the need for ourselves in the community. We're trying to work ourselves out of a job every day by doing the justice work. And that looks like more affordable housing. That looks like laws and policies that don't criminalize our people for just being on the streets. So we do, um, we do both at Open Table. And we also do education, which we're really passionate about. So let's, um, let's break that down just a little bit. Yeah. So we're, most of us are familiar with Room in the Inn. Yes. Most of us are familiar with the Nashville Rescue Mission. So how would you distinguish, and I know this is a big question, but how would you distinguish Open Table Nashville from what most people are familiar with is Nashville Rescue Mission or Room in the Inn? Yeah. So the first one's obvious. We're an outreach instead of, y'all talked about inreach. So we go out to where people are. Um, we're different from some of the more Christian-centered groups because we're interfaith, 
And for us, interfaith is like that welcome mat you put out in front and says, we learn from all people, from all walks of life. We always have something to learn. We always have something to share. Um, So that's something that distinguishes us. And then the biggest thing, I think, the two biggest things that distinguish us is that we are, um, we call the people we work with, not clients or consumers, we call them friends. Um, There's a deep mutuality and a deep relationality between the folks we work with on the streets and our staff. And we also are very interested in not being a voice for the voiceless um, because people have their own voices, right? So we welcome people's voices and agency with us and we welcome their work um, in trying to help us change our city for the better. So we don't need outreach programs. We don't need missions. That's our like long-term goal. Now, you talked about affordable housing and housing outreach. Uh, Talk a little bit more about that part of the mission of Open Table Nashville. Yeah, so it's crazy. Um, Every unhoused person has one thing in common. They don't have a home, right? Um, I ask groups that all the time. I'm like, what does every unhoused person have in common? And everybody's like, oh, I don't know. (laughs) We We know that housing ends homelessness. We know there's something deeper, that there's a sense of community and wholeness that's sometimes missing too. But that housing stabilizes somebody and helps them work on those other things about themselves uh, that contribute to wholeness. So in Nashville, um, how many of y'all are really happy with the housing that you have and feel like it's super affordable for you? (laughs) Most of us have to like really scramble. We're paying more than our income that we should in rent. Um, and we're having to move further the, than we want to from the places. So that's, a, that's something that our, every kind of class is struggling with in Nashville, but it's certainly hardest for the folks um, on fixed income and low income. All right, so let's, let me back up a step. Um, a lot of us individually, um, interesting personal backgrounds brought us to Grace Point, brought us here. A lot of us come from different evangelical backgrounds or Uh, mainline backgrounds or Catholic different backgrounds and we like personal biography so you and I talked a little bit about our Church of Christ the commonality so why don't you talk a little bit about that if you don't mind yeah so I um I grew up in the foothills of South Carolina and um I grew up at a very conservative Church of Christ church and I'm recovering from that now (laughs) along with maybe some of you um There was amazing things I learned at the church, my home church. I learned how to take care of people. Um, I learned how to make casseroles, right, when people are sick and struggling. Um, I I also learned how to exclude people um, that didn't believe like me, that didn't look like me, that didn't love like me. And that, um, that exclusion also trickled down to myself. I grew up in a church where I felt like I was called to ministry, but I was told again and again that... God didn't work through women like that. God didn't speak through, move through, work through women. So I would need to get some other job. And I internalized that. Um, in addition to my upbringing in the Church of Christ, I also grew up with a family where I learned about the darkness of addiction and mental health issues from cousins and uncles and a brother who, um, who used, who um, struggled with suicide, who... Um, who kind of like cycled in and out of the jails and the treatment facilities and the streets back home in South Carolina. And it wasn't until I got to Nashville that I realized that those issues, poverty, homelessness, mental health issues, they're bigger than just personal issues, right? They're systemic and they're everywhere. 
Um, and so that was a big realization for me. I came to Nashville for college at Lipscomb and just kind of felt like it was exactly where I needed to be um, and have grown a lot since then too. So clearly your instruction at Lipscomb failed, right? So, <laughs> it clearly no, did. No. No. Um, I, so you, you come from that background, you come to Nashville, you come to Lipscomb with that set of experiences and, and that worldview. So what happens next? So um, when I was at Lipscomb, again, I was planning to have a really comfortable life. I even told my professors, like, I want to be a physical therapist so I can have a comfortable life. Um, And in college, I had a really terrible ankle injury. Um, I was rock climbing, and it left me unable to walk without aid for over a year. And any time we have those huge experiences for us where we're, like, basically broken down and whittled down and completely dependent on others, um, realize how vulnerable we are and how much we need others, Um, something happens to you, it it broke me open, and at the same time, um, good old Lipscomb, we were really studying the prophets, we were going through Isaiah, going through Jeremiah, and I was seeing this string of this special concern for the poor and the oppressed and the vulnerable run through scripture, Um, and I couldn't look away from that, and then by complete chance or fate or something, I stumbled upon the offices of the Nashville Homeless Power Project downtown. And that was a group of folks that were homeless and formerly homeless that were organizing themselves around housing. And they took me under their wing and became my mentors, introduced me, Charlie Strobel, who started Room in the Inn, and he became a mentor to me. And that, I I never looked back. It was like, I found exactly where I was supposed to be and everything in my background and everything kind of like lit, lit up. So it was fun to tell my parents, dear mom and dad, I'm not gonna go to physical therapy school next year when I graduate. I'm actually gonna work on the streets, but don't worry, it's gonna be okay. So and they were, I think the Bible wants me to do that. I think right? God is calling me to do that. They're like, my mom sent me Oprah self-defense tips for a very long time. So, um, so what, in that time period, uh, you mentioned the prophets. Are there other um, theological heroes, books, okay. thinkers, were there other people you were reading or spending time with that we may be interested in or have a similar experience with that really had an influence on you? Yeah, I'd say um, the most dangerous person I read next to reading, actually reading Jesus, which is incredibly dangerous, um, don't do it if you want to be safe and comfortable, um, was reading Dorothy Day. Um, and do you all know Dorothy Day? She, for those of you who don't, she was the co-founder of the Catholic Worker Movement, and it, it really took root after the Great Depression. And she, she was Catholic, but she had this rich um, tradition of Catholic social teachings and the saints that she was drawing from where, you know, this idea of heaven isn't this pie in the sky when you die, but it's actually um, something we're called to participate in the here and now. So she started Houses of Hospitality after the Depression. She got involved in the anti-war movement and workers' rights. She was arrested again and again, and she took vows of voluntary poverty, and she's the closest thing to a modern-day saint that I could find. Um, She would say things like, you know, after the church fathers, if you have two coats in your closet, one belongs to the poor. And I hadn't heard anyone talking like that. Um, so I read her, it was very dangerous, and, um, and that changed the trajectory of my life. 
Yeah, I think when I first became involved with Open Table, um, no, five or six years ago, mm -hmm. I, I met Lindsay and I met Ingrid McIntyre, the executive director, and, and I wasn't familiar with Dorothy Day, and I came from a world of being a corporate lawyer. And they both introduced me to Dorothy Day, and I read some of her books, and, and I couldn't concur more for those of you who are interested in that view of the world if you haven't been exposed to it. It completely upturned my view of what the gospel is. And I had come from you know, a similar background from you. And when I thought about theology, most of my theologians, many of them were German and they were white guys and they were from you know, the, the 19th century or, or the mid 20th century. And I read Dorothy Day and I realized that those thinkers were thinkers. They were living in their head and Dorothy was actually living a life. Mm -hmm. um, really remarkable. And I, so I'm always grateful to you guys for introducing me mm -hmm. to Dorothy Day. Um, so you meet Charlie Strobel mm -hmm. and you begin to get involved with Charlie. So let's fast forward a little bit mm -hmm. to how Open Table Nashville got started. Yeah. So um, I, I worked three years between undergrad and grad school and was really doing um, homeless outreach work with a mental health agency. I thought, how can I, um, how can I do this work? basically get somebody to pay me to volunteer. And the answer for me was AmeriCorps, which is basically like you're living in poverty level wages and you're doing work um, around poverty issues. So I did AmeriCorps for two years. And during that time, um, I was working with Emma Ingrid and was working with a couple other ministers. We got really involved in the um, largest tent city in Nashville. At its max, it had over 140 people and pets. It was like its own city. Um, we helped it have a self-governing council. The city tried to close it. We helped residents organize. We kept it open. And then two years after relationship building with those folks, the flood comes, right? So 2010, many of you are here. Um, everything around the river, everything that was low ground completely flooded. Intense city was swimming. Like the rats and the cats were on like the different structures. It was crazy. Everybody lost everything. And Open Table started because of a promise me, Ingrid, and a couple others made to those residents of Tent City when the Red Cross shelter closed and the city turned their back on them. We said, we don't know what's going to happen, but we're not going to abandon you. We're going to stay with you. We're going to figure this out. And um, that journey led us to a crazy, um, crazy experience, some of which is captured in the documentary Tent City USA. And um, we formed Open Table Nashville. We knew that something, there's a gap in the city. Um, somebody needed to be doing the kind of work um, that we wanted to form. So we formed Open Table through that promise, through that commitment. So when you say, and I want to return to this, you said there was a gap in the city. Yeah. We've talked about that a little bit, but can you speak to that again? What, that, what's yeah. that gap? So when I was working with a mental health agency, a homeless outreach group, they're incredible. Very transactional, but they could get people IDs, they could get people birth certificates, disability benefits. But there was something that was missing. There was this deeper sense of um, like emotional and spiritual wholeness that people are hungry for. There was this inability from a secular nonprofit to mobilize the faith community. And we know that in Nashville, the faith community is one of the biggest players in terms of people um, that could get involved in an issue. We also saw that the people in power had no interest in actually changing things for the folks on the bottom, right? Their interest is in keeping the status quo so they maintain their power. 
We needed an organization that could speak truth to power um, and work for justice and be on the side of the people, not just in service, but in solidarity. Um, so that's why we started Open Table Nashville. So let's talk for a second about um, homelessness generally in yeah. Nashville and, and the, the varying types, kinds. Yeah. Um, I know you brought some statistics. I brought statistics. some stats. He told me he was going to ask yeah, me about stats. I like so I brought some Those stats for you. Would you give us some statistics in terms of yeah. demographics, numbers? Uh, you know, we, we drive down the street and we see people on corners and we know that there are mm -hmm. tent cities. We know that kind of thing. But how big is this challenge for our community? Yeah, we, um, with Open Table Nashville, a lot of advocates believe that there's over 20,000 people experiencing homelessness in Nashville. And if you look at national statistics, um, with homelessness, the fastest growing demographic of folks on the streets um, is children, is families, and nationally about 35% of folks that make up the homeless community are families. Um, so if you think about 20,000, that's a huge number, but picture Bridgestone Arena completely packed to the brim, including the floor, that's 20,000. So there are folks that are living in shanty towns. Um, there are mothers and children we met recently that are in storage units um, in old cars. And people are living in subhuman conditions in our own backyard. And when we look, statistics are tricky, but um, I pulled some national statistics for y'all just to kind of give you a snapshot of what we're seeing broadly. Um, about 40% across the nation of folks on the streets are actually employed. They're just not making enough to afford what they need to afford. Do y'all know what uh, minimum wage is in Nashville? 725, which is like the federal minimum. Um, you can't make it in this town on that. Um, we've got, with people that experience mental health issues, it's anywhere from 30 to 50%. And I would say once people get on the streets for a while, it's even higher than that. Um, addiction issue, we're looking at 30 to 40%. Can I stop, can I interrupt you for a second? Yeah. All right, so one of the questions that I get a lot uh, from my friends when I start to talk about the work that we do yeah. who don't have experience with homelessness, they say, you know, what, what percentage of the people that you work with have mental health issues? And I, I want to hear your reaction to this because when I first started, the way that I conceived mental health issues is somebody that I encountered in a canvassing who was clearly having a schizophrenic mm -hmm. episode. That's easy, right? Um, and I would say, oh, I'd say a majority, honestly. And then they would say, well, aren't there some people who just want to live, like just want to live in tents and they kind of want to live that way? And correct me, you know, push back here. And I thought, you know, if one day you woke up and your spouse was sleeping under the bushes in your backyard and you walked out there and you said, what are you doing? And your spouse said, this is just the way I want to live now. I want to get up and I walk down to the public library and I want to use the restroom at the public library. Then I want to walk all the way across town and I want to eat at the church there. And sometimes uh, when the doors are locked, I, I want to use the bathroom outside and I don't want to show. And that's the way I want to live. I don't think I would say, oh, that's cool. I, I respect that that's the way you want to live. I would think you probably had something going yeah. on. Is that fair? Yes. Okay. There's deep issues of, deep histories of trauma that we see on the streets. Um, and there's, 
what I tell people is, you know, our behavior is like the tip of an iceberg. The behavior that you see people doing is what you see. But underneath that iceberg, that's all the histories, the trauma, the experiences, um, growing up in poverty, growing up with the dad that beats you, growing up with the mom that puts alcohol in your bottle to keep you quiet. Um, and I also tell people, you know, the folks that we're working with, when you go and look for housing, what are you looking for? You're looking for a nice, safe place with a yard, um, an apartment, duplex, a house. Our people, their options are the projects, their slums teeming with mold and bed bugs. They don't have the same options that we have. And those traumas get compounded um, and people feel powerless. So sometimes people feel like in order to stay, keep their minds healthy, it's better for them to be outside in nature than it is some of the crowded projects and slums that we have options for them. That's a really hard situation and it's complex. So thank you for pointing to that. Yeah. So if I'm, let me do it this way. If, if I am a, an individual man and I find myself uh, evicted and without resources in Nashville, and I am facing an evening with no place to stay, no friend that will let me sleep on a couch, or where do I go? What do I do? Yeah. What are my options? Um, well, if you can't get into the mission because the doors are closed, or you don't feel comfortable there because it's so crowded, or you've been threatened by somebody there, um, you actually have nowhere to legally exist on our streets. Um, you would think, well, oh, I would me, go to the what is public it? parks. Let me interrupt you. Yeah. Nowhere to He's legally lawyer, exist. So. Yeah, I'm a lawyer, yeah. So, so when, you, when we say there's nowhere to legally exist, that means it is, it is a crime for me to now be anywhere. It is a crime for you to exist and to rest. If you're walking, you're fine. You can walk on the sidewalks. But if you start to lay down on a sidewalk, you're obstructing the passageway. And you better believe if you look a certain way, you're going to get a ticket um, or you're going to get arrested. Um, the public parks close. The churches have trespass waivers. People found on church steps get arrested. Um, People that are sleeping on benches are okay, but downtown we've removed most of the benches around the library just because it used to be legal to sleep there and people don't want to see people. Um, so you're going to be faced with the issue of um, basically be invisible or be arrested. So you try to hide and it's also less safe when you're not in the public view. So um, you are more at risk of being attacked um, or being mugged or being the victim of a violent attack by you know, drunk kids downtown, which happens often. What if you're a, let's say you're an individual woman. What, what are my other risks? I have never met, I've never met a woman on the streets who has not experienced sexual violence, ever. So a lot of the women I see pair up with men that abuse them and mistreat them, but they feel safer paired up with a man than they do by themselves. So there's this extra layer of unsafety, of traumas, of violence that you're exposed to. And we see that same risk for folks in the LGBTQ plus community too, um, because they are often victims of um, those kind of attacks and violence on the streets. So it's incredibly precarious. So that, that's a good, if I am um, a couple, if I'm a gay couple yeah. on the streets and I wanna seek sh a, a shelter, where do I go? Well, and I want to I want to stay with my partner. With, you know, you could try the gendered missions, but the gendered missions are um, they're kind of the tradition I came out of, conservative Christian. So if you make any show of affection, 
um, you're going to be told you can't do that. So you also feel kind of targeted and unsafe. We've heard from a lot of folks who seek shelter at the um, very overly Christian um, fundamentalist missions. What about um, a father with children? There's nowhere. You can't go to the women's mission where you can keep your kids because you're a dad. Um, so you're going to have to find a hotel. you have to find somebody. Sometimes Room in the Inn in the winter months is able to find congregations, but that's when they can. So there's, there's so many barriers that people don't realize. They say, just go to the mission. Um, but until you start hearing the stories of why people can't, you realize it's a lot more complex than that. And, and forgive these, what we're going through right now, but for a lot of us, and, and certainly for me until I got involved in this work, you just, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. And you don't know what you don't think about. Um, so let me ask you another example. One of the things that Open Table does is we, we do canvassing. When it gets really, really cold in Nashville, below freezing, uh, we'll go out, we know where a lot of our friends are, and we will try to convince our friends to go into the emergency warming shelters that Nashville opens when it's below a certain temperature. And these are our friends who don't feel safe at the Nashville Rescue Mission and would rather risk uh, being out on the streets under 30 degrees than they would be at the, be at the Nashville Rescue Mission. Um, I have, when I've canvassed, and I know you have so much more than I have, I have run into people who are having full-blown schizophrenic episodes. Um, when I'm trying to convince them to get in the car so they can go to a warming shelter. Is, is there any way for me to get that person to a safe place if they don't want to go? I mean, unless they're a danger to themselves, no. I mean, we train our volunteers. And first of all, a shout out to Steve Lindstrom, who has literally saved my life this winter for uh, helping me downtown. It's been incredible to have him. I mean, he knows this too. Um, we, we always respect folks' agency, and we are trained in assessment, so if people are not safe to stay out, we'll make a call. Um, but often in those situations, if we think they are safe to stay out, we'll get them as many supplies as they can, help them come up with a plan to stay safe and where they can sleep um, and go that route. But um, we're, you know, Nashville just opened up another crisis center through mental health co-ops, so we're really excited about having extra beds in our community but that'll be somewhere that, um, that's an alternative to jail, an alternative to missions where you're not getting the mental health care. That's a crisis center that can be used in situations like that um, for people that are a harm to themselves or a danger to others. But I want to emphasize that point. When you come on somebody who, if you've, if you've got Metro, Metro there, the police department, if, if that person's not seen as, a, as harmful to themselves or harmful to another person, there's no resource for them. Yeah. They're just left there. Um, and, and unless you've experienced that personally, it's really hard to, it's really hard to even imagine it. Um, all right, I'm gonna shift that to a different subject. Um, so some of us probably came this morning thinking, uh, we knew we were gonna hear about Open Table Nashville. We also probably thought we were gonna hear or wanted to hear an, an uplifting message. Um, that's not what this is, or maybe it is. Um, and there's a question I want to ask you that comes out of some of our backgrounds, and it's this. For most of us in many of our backgrounds, work with the marginalized, and not just good thoughts about the marginalized, and not just the occasional special offering we had in the Baptist tradition that I grew up in, but actual work 
shoulder to shoulder with the marginalized. Um, in my Southern Baptist tradition, we decided long ago that we would hire people to go do that work. And that that was not part, that didn't have to be a part of what a Christian life looked like. So let me put that question to you. Is work with the marginalized and specifically those deeply impoverished, is that an optional part of the Christian life? It is absolutely not an optional part of Christian life. Um, when we look at the history of the church, when we look at uh, um, a Christ, a Jesus, a leader, a teacher who was homeless himself, when we look at the teachings, you know, the church grew out of a marginalized people. And what happened when um, Christianity became the state religion of the Roman Empire, basically, right, is there is a switch between a marginalized group of people taking care of each other and working on the bottom, sharing what they had in common, to all of a sudden, this religion of oppressors, um, where you impose religion. Um, our roots are rooted in um, community with the poor. It's where we find our um, purpose, where we find our identity, and where we find our liberation, I would say. Um, in Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats parable is very clear um, what kind of acts do we need to do in order to, um, to touch Jesus in the here and now? We need to give water. We need to visit people in prison. We need to shelter folks. Um, you look through the prophets, and there's this beautiful passage in Isaiah 58 where God is speaking to the people who are fasting, and they're going through the ritual. And God says, this isn't the kind of fasting I desire. The fasting I want from you is to take care of your neighbor and to loose the chains of oppression. Like, that's what I want my people to do. Not to turn away from your own flesh and blood, says the prophet Isaiah, um, but to encounter them in relationships. Um, Pope Francis, in more modern times, fast forward a couple thousand years, I brought this quote for y'all. Um, he says, no one can say that they cannot be close to the poor because of their own lifestyle and that it demands more attention to other areas. This is an excuse commonly heard in academic, business, and professional, even ecclesial circles. But none of us can think we are exempt from concern for the poor or for social justice. Um, I really believe that the Christian life on one side is about that prayer and that spirituality, and on the other side, it's about action in our communities. It's about being the hands and feet in the here and now. Um, and that's going to look different for all of us, but none of us are exempt from using our hands and feet to affect change. We all have gifts. Um, so, that so how does that, Kevin Riggs, you, you mentioned Matthew 25, Kevin Riggs, who's the pastor at Franklin Community Church down in Williamson County, who's a big advocate, said one time, he said, you know, when I got into this work, I read Matthew 25, and I decided I was going to show up, and I was going to serve the least of these, and I realized when I showed up, I was the least of these. Um, that, that this is not something I'm doing for somebody else, and this is something I'm doing with somebody else. Yeah. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, we, um, at Open Table Nashville, we believe that our liberation, like our spiritual and our physical liberation, is bound up with the liberation of the poor. Um, we are liberated through sharing and through community together. So for me, I'm liberated 
by all the things that hold me captive, like my need for security, uh, my desire for nice things. I'm liberated by that when I share what I have and when I see others that have less than me sharing what they have among each other. I see more of the radical early church in Acts um, at Tent City than I do in most of our churches. And through the relationship that I have with my friends on the streets, they're liberated by the things that hold them back, like their belief that they're worthless, um, or by those systems that tell them, there's a wall here for you, you can't cross this. Well, we can cross it together, and we do. Um, So um, liberation, salvation is relational. It's not just the, um, or it's not just the vertical, but it's the horizontal um, in my theology, and in our theology, so... Um, that's kind of where we are on that. But we, we really believe that. If I can't be well, um, if there are people in this city that don't have insurance, health insurance, we've got to work on that together. We've got to be a part of that. That's connected. Um, so that deep conviction drives us, and it drives us toward action and toward justice. Um, but a lot of times what I see is, you know, it's hard to sustain that life of action and justice. I don't know if many of you have gotten into activism or on the front lines of some of these things, but um, I also say that I'm taught by the spiritual teachers um, of the world that this action and this life of justice has to be balanced with a life of contemplation. So um, I've heard it taught that contemplation and action are two sides of the same coin, right? Um, Action without contemplation is fragmented and reactionary, Um, but contemplation without action is self-serving. When you have this life, um, for me, it's a spiritual life of contemplation, of silence, of listening um, to others and to God and carving that out, carving out space from the distractedness that many of us get wrapped up in, right? Um, Then my action is deeply rooted and a tree that has deep roots is not reached by the frost. It's not, it weathers storms. So that's a kind of spirituality and social activism that that we're trying to model and we're trying to live into and we're trying to teach. Um, we, the Christian life is about, is about prayer. It's about welcoming the outcast parts of ourself and the outcasts in general. Um, but it's also about action. Um, so we have to hold those things together. So how, how do we get involved? And how do we as a church relate to that? And I'll start with a, one of the other questions that I get that all of us think sometimes. What do I do when I see the person on the street corner? Mm-hmm. You know, when I, when I turned here, there was somebody. Yeah. What is, what's the right reaction? Yeah. So the, um, the micro level is, of being kind to people is as important as the macro level of doing justice. And when I, um, I get that question a lot, and often it's a really awkward place, you know, when we pull up to the median or to the off-ramp, and there's somebody there, and we'll, like, act like we're on our phones, or we'll look away, because it's awkward. We're not prepared, Um, but I tell this to church groups a lot. Um, The good Samaritan that came across a person on life's roadside was prepared. He had the oil and the wine and the bandages, so what can you do to prepare yourself? Are there things that you can have in your car? Um... I often carry socks, so the woman that's on 46, when I got off, I had two hand warmers near the front seat, and I handed them out the window, and I I I was rolling then, um, but I handed them out, and I said, I hope these help, and she said, thank you so much. Um, Can we be prepared to be hands and feet, 
And even when we don't have something, even when you don't have those couple dollars for the paper, or even when you don't have those socks, socks are like gold, y'all. On rainy days like this, your feet get soaked. Um, We don't have that water, those hand warmers. Just affirming people's dignity can make a huge difference. The way you interact with somebody can change their body chemistry. Um, When people are having a hard day and they're told to get a job, you lazy bum, by everybody who passes, and you smile even when you don't have something in wave, um, that can share, like send a spark into someone to help them realize that they're loved and that there are possibilities for healing. You might not be the social worker that can get them housing. We do that. Um, But you can be kind and you can connect and you can affirm the image of God, the human dignity in each and every person you come across. Um, The scandal of the gospel is that that image of God is in everybody from the person on the corner um, to the person at the top, the CEO executive of whatever corporation. That is a scandalous gospel. (laughs) It means that we have to stay open to the possibility of relationships and transformation no matter where people are. Um, so just being a little bit more prepared. We, we also make little survival kits, you know, blessing bags that we hand out the windows. But just being prepared is a huge step um, and really can, really can be that kindness um, that can encourage somebody. So we have, at, at Open Table Nashville, we've now grown to a pretty big organization. Uh, we don't accept any public money. All of our uh, sources of finance are private. Mm-hmm. Um, we're building a tiny home village that some of you may know about at Glencliff United Methodist Church. We're excited about that. That's been a long time coming. Um, we do resource shelters. Uh, our shelters are more geared toward that really beginning or staying on the journey with people as we move them toward housing. Um, we do work when, once we get people in housing and we make sure that we, we stay there and we continue a community because if you pull someone out of even a tent city and you place them in housing by themselves and totally isolated, you haven't done them any favors because you've taken them out of it. So we keep community going that way. So with a group like ours, what can we do to become involved and, and what does Open Table need the most? Um, a community like Grace Point, you have so many resources, even if those aren't financial, you have things in your closet, you have things that you don't need, you have a few dollars to put toward monthly giving, you have kindness and listening, um, you can come to our resource shelters and make those casseroles we learned to make when we were in the evangelical churches. Um, you can, you can connect. Um, some of you are lawyers, some of you are nurses, some of you are teachers. All of those skills can be used with our folks um, at our resource shelters. We do foot clinics, we wash feet. Um, if you wanna learn to do that with us, if you wanna learn to accompany our folks and start building those relationships, we'd love to have you at our resource shelters every second and fourth Friday of the month. Um, but also just be that voice for, for change. Follow us on social media because we do action calls when there's policy coming down the pike. Um, speak out for affordable housing. And um, when you hear folks dismissing other people, remind them that they matter too and that there are real ways that you can make a difference on both the micro and the macro level in Nashville. Um, we are crazy enough to believe that we can change our community because we've already done it. Um, and we're going to keep doing it. 
and I don't know how long it's gonna take to end homelessness, probably way beyond me, but we're, we're, that's our vision and we're moving toward that. For us, it's, that's the beloved community where everybody has housing, where everybody's welcome at the table and where everybody doesn't just get crumbs from the table, but they have a place at the table. Um, so join us in helping that happen um, and we would love to have you. We, you have a lot to offer, so. We said it'd be a conversation. Does anybody have any questions you'd like to ask for Lindsay or comments? Yeah. Um, what can kids do? So um, one way to get your kids involved is to um, have a day where you and maybe their friends make those little blessing bags or survival bags for your car. Teach them that the people that we're passing matter too and have names. Um, we did this with four-year-olds last summer. We taught four-year-olds how to pack bags and introduce themselves to people um, with uh, an adult present, of course. But, um, but that was really meaningful. And we also love kids at our resource shelters. If you're gonna be with your kids, bring them, have them serve dinner with you. Um, have them make the breakfast and then bring it. Have them sit at the table next to our friends um, and strike up a conversation. We would love to have them because it, it, it starts early. Uh, yeah, I can add, because I've gotten my kids who are young involved and we did a scavenger hunt Yeah. Uh, at, the, at the park across in the library with them. We, certain questions like, if you don't have a place to live, where do you go to the bathroom? And we went around the park together and asked people who live in the park those sorts of questions to become aware. And to put that in perspective, I live in Williamson County and I read a book, a children's book to my kid's third grade class, where at the end of the book, the, the two main characters go to a soup kitchen and a homeless shelter to serve. And I asked the class of third graders what a homeless shelter is and only one kid knew what it was. And then they, I asked them what a soup kitchen was and only one kid knew what a soup kitchen was. So I think it's it really, I can tell you those people who are a little bit afraid to get your kids involved, don't be. It's it, actually, they get it. They get it better than most adults do. Yeah, they do. Anybody else? What else? Yes. Yes. Did so, everybody get that? <laughs> yeah, the, so the ordination, the collar. Um, so I was actually, in, surprise, surprise, in the denomination I grew up in, in the Church of Christ, there, aren't ways for, there weren't ways for me to enter into ministry. So I was ordained through an ecumenical um, church called Amos House that's in the tradition of the prophet Amos and the Catholic worker movement, which is really interesting. And I was ordained to the streets by not only the people that I serve, but also that faith community. And my ordination was at Tent City, um, by the river, under the bridges. And so for a lot of us have found that there's not really a place for us. We have to make our place. You made Grace Point your place. Um, for me, I've done that. And my church is on the streets. Um, my people are on the streets. I bury my people. I marry my people. Um, I, I, like, I'm at their bedsides when they're dying um, and when they're fighting for their lives. That's, that's what I do as a street chaplain. But I also serve in an interfaith capacity. So it's, it's pretty fun. <laughs> it's awesome. Anybody else? I think we're about at time, too. Would you do us, especially because you're ordained, would you do us the great uh, favor of giving us a blessing? Absolutely. Um, may you go from here with deep roots, roots that stretch to the deep groundwaters 
um, of contemplation, of spirituality that nourish you and your action in the world. May you be blessed as you go here with scandalous grace that recognizes everyone as kin um, and everyone as part of um, our bigger family. Um, Be in love with your neighbors and the world and each other and let that love transform you and your community. Amen.